0: several proposed pieces of legislation are geared toward changing the makeup of the Indiana State Board of Education. Legislators are attempting to reduce the number of board members and remove the requirement that the state superintendent automatically serves as the board's chair. Some people claim this is a partisan effort to strip Superintendent Glenda Ritz, the only Democrat elected to a statewide office, of many of her powers. I'm Bob Salzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we will speak with guests about what this legislation would change uh, the structure of education in the state. Is it necessary change or a power play by the Republican majority? We invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving Southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net.
1: And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life, publichealth.indiana.edu.
0: welcome to noon edition i'm bob zaltzberg editor of the herald times along with co-host rachel morello from state impact indiana the state superintendent of of schools has automatically been the chair of the state school board for 100 years but that could change if proposed legislation passes to allow the state board to elect one of its members to serve as chair today on noon edition we'll discuss what this means for current superintendent Glenda ritz some say this is a partisan effort to strip Ritz, the only Democrat elected to statewide office, of some of her powers. Others say that it's just an effort to try to make the, the board run in a more functional manner. We have three guests with us today. Um, Kathy Fuentes Rohr is here. She's the head of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education of Monroe County in southern Indiana and a Bloomington mom. And Steve Hennefeld is here. He is a longtime education blogger. Uh, he worked for the Herald Times for many years covering education. And Steve is just uh, basically very knowledgeable about all going on at the State House today. And also, we uh, will be joined soon by John Barnes. He's the Director of Legislative Affairs for the Indiana Department of Education. You can join the conversation by giving us a call at 855 0811 in Bloomington or 1 877 285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So before we get started, I want to say this is actually a much broader show than even that issue. It's become uh, the the biggest issue in education. I mean, it is a huge issue in education, but part of it has been playing out this week with the, uh, the I-STEP tests and whether whether they're too long, and if they are too long, uh, as they seem to be, whose fault that is, and some people are blaming Gr- Bl- Glenda Ritz for it. Others are blaming other people. So. Rachel, it's been you're covering education. It's been kind of a wild time.
2: Yeah, it's been pretty busy this week. Um, and you gave a good history, Bob. But I just want to mention to um, this one item of legislation that's already made its way through the house, and that's a bill that would allow the board to elect a chair from within its ranks beginning this coming July. Like you said, the superintendent has served as the chair automatically. Whoever. Um, is elected to that position, fills that slot. And this week we talked to House Speaker Brian Bosma, who tends to remain on his podium during discussion on the House floor, but he actually stepped down to offer his comments on this idea. And he told me afterwards why he decided to do that.
3: I've spent the last two years, along with Senator David Long, trying to mediate uh, some of the dysfunction issues between the State Board of Education and the superintendent. Uh, the governor's former office of uh ceci his, his uh school advisors education advisors and i've been really really very quiet about the dysfunction and have tried to bring it uh bring it to a close in a conclusion in a positive manner but with the with the i-step testing uh, announcement that i step time was nearly tripling for third through eighth graders here in the next uh two months Uh, it was time uh, to no longer remain silent and and indicate this has gone from dysfunctional to detrimental now for students.
2: So, of course, Bosma is referring to the timetables that were released earlier this month that showed students would need to sit double and in some cases triple, like he said, the amount of time that they had in previous years to complete this spring's I-STEP. So let's talk a little bit about how the state board and the relations between the board and Ritz and her Department of Education are sort of playing into this. Let's, Let's go to Steve first.
4: Well, there's no question that they're bad, and they've been bad for uh, a long time. I guess the question is whether that uh, equals dysfunction and, and what the, uh, what the uh, answer is to that. I think just a little sort of context and background. Indiana is one of, I believe, nine states, something like that, where the um, state superintendent or the, state, the chief state school officer is, is elected. Uh, here, the state board is, is appointed by the governor. So if you have a governor and a superintendent of opposite political parties, there's potential for conflict over what education uh, policy should be and how it should be carried out. But I think it's also important to point out that Indiana has had that circumstance um, cons- for a considerable amount of time in the past, uh, including not that long ago when Evan Bay and uh, Frank O'Bannon and Joe Kernan were governor. And, and when. Um, Uh, Sue Ellen Reed was the superintendent of Republican, Democratic governors, and things seem to work pretty well then, so it's not a a guarantee, and other states states seem to manage okay. So I think uh, just sort of the combination of the uh, sort of pace of education changes and the polarization around issues of education uh, has uh, made it more difficult, and personalities have made it much more difficult, I would say. Uh, you watch the board meetings. I've watched, I haven't been to any, but I, I know you have, Rachel, and you watch them uh, online or, or watch the videos, and it's just really plain that they're having a, a great deal of difficulty being in the same room with each other.
2: Yeah. I mean, even today, we were just saying we were watching the meeting, and they've got two weeks to fix all this ISTEP stuff, and it, it came to play again, you know, talking about board procedure and how they're getting materials to one another, so it's definitely, it's playing into it. I think
0: it. it's interesting to to go back to, to how what the, what this new legislation would do and how it's set up now. I mean, Steve you know, and Rachel mm-hmm. and Kathy, all three, for, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but um, the governor basically appoints members of the State Board of Education now, so the leader of the Board of Education is somebody who's in the, the opposite party. And the new legislation, would change that and have different people appointing different members. Correct, Steve? Yeah,
4: there are several bills that that are in play, um, and they're changing as they move, which is typical in the legislature. Um, one, the, I think it's Senate Bill One that, that's moving. Um, that would, um, you know, the thing that's gotten a lot of attention is that these uh, most of these bills would remove the requirement from statute that the state. Uh, state superintendent serve as chair of the State Board of Education. So presumably the board would elect someone other than Glenda Ritz as as chair. Um, But they also changed the makeup of the board. Um, They uh, at some point remove or change or weaken the requirement that the board include members of of more than one political party. Um, They, at least I think as amended, Senate Bill 1 gives more appointments to the Speaker of the House and the President Potem of the Senate. Uh, they remove the requirement for geographical distribution of board members, which uh, has been there for a long time, that, that there be a representative from each congressional district. So a lot of changes going on in addition to that. And then there's other legislation that um, is being looked at. I'm not sure how, it, how it's doing that would uh, kind of shift some re- duties and responsibilities from the Department of Education, the administrative body, headed by Glenda Ritz to the State Board of Education, which would have the authority to hire staff to uh, carry out programs and do that sort of thing as well, mm-hmm. so,
0: Kathy. I want to bring you in because uh, you know Kathy. Kathy Fuente's roar. Uh, her name appears in our paper a lot on ed- in education <laughs> stories, and uh, you know she's she is very active and very involved, and she's a, she has students in the school. So you know why why are you so passionate about this, and how did you get so active?
5: Um. Well, I I have four kids, like you said, and um, one is at college now, but I have two in high school and one that's only 10 in fourth grade. So he took that battery of testing last year in the I Read 3, where his teacher didn't have any say over whether or not he went to fourth grade, only that test that the state decided had that say. And um, I feel strongly about public education because I feel strongly that it's the cornerstone of our democracy. And I think that the problem that we have on the state board is not dissent, I mean, it's not dysfunction. It's dissent. And they don't want dissent. They want complete railroading through like they had. And um, I, th- I think I represent a lot of parents and a lot of citizens in the state who saw Glenda Ritz's campaign and were saying, whoa, back. There's an ALEC agenda, American Legislative Exchange Council, um, which uh, is named after us. There's a whole Indiana education reform plan named after us. And so this all was falling into play pretty smoothly for them. They had their supermajority, but enough people were unhappy with what was happening to schools and decided to push back and elected Glenda Ritz. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it's worth going back in history a little bit because Tony Bennett was a superintendent of public instruction, and everything was sort of going along smoothly with, with uh, all the reforms, if I can use that word. In Indiana, with the legislature, and then Glenda Ritz got about 53 percent of the vote. Mike mm-hmm. Pence got about 52 percent of the vote. I think, or less than that, perhaps. There, there were three candidates, but that's so, right. 40, so less percentage 40, right. votes, but he got fewer votes than she did. Right, and and so that that has that set up this potential conflict. But the voters set it up because the voters said, "We are going to elect Glenda Ritz, the Democrat." over the guy who for the last four years has been running policy on education. So there's bound to be some kind of conflict.
4: Oh, absolutely. And arguably the voters um, um, also elected Governor Pence, Mm -hmm. uh, although that campaign was not uh, strongly about education. They also have elected uh, uh, Republican supermajorities in both the House and Senate, although most of them have not campaigned on education. Uh, education issues for the most part, although there were some education issues raised in the last election, uh, and also arguably uh, those uh, numbers reflect the way districts are drawn to a certain extent, not necessarily the will of the voters. But in some ways, one could argue that we're getting in uh, Indianapolis uh, the same kind of divided government that, that we're getting in Washington, D.C., and, and that we as voters have, uh, have asked for. Mm-hmm. All right, we
0: have a phone call already. So Chris from Ellotsville's is on the line. Chris, go ahead. Hi. Um,
6: hey. I have a cold, so excuse me. I'll try to see, see clearly. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, I get kind of fiery on this topic. Um, I have stu- uh, a couple of children, a minor in school, and um, family members that are teachers. And I think it's kind of odd how, um, you know, Glenda Ritz was voted in by a huge... You know, seemed like a, a vast majority, and I don't understand why um, it's sort of a one-sided argument on the news media that uh, somehow she's causing these problems that are interrupting children's education <laughs> when, you know, I believe she was an educator herself, and I think she has a better interest of children at heart than, uh, uh, you know, administrators. I just find it funny that when Tony Bennett was elected, he was elected, and I guess he went along with, uh, you know, whatever the agenda was, and he was lauded as a great guy, but you know, look at his uh, record as he leaves office, and um, then why is it if you have someone who has been voted in, who changed their political party to be voted in, uh, suddenly, you know, just like uh, Ms. Fuente said, she's not... uh, She's not playing along, and so it seems as though there's a a kind of a witch hunt at work to kind of, uh, you know, strip her of powers and to make it look like that she's she's the problem. And I kind of think that echoes exactly the same thing that you know is going on with teachers, that somehow teachers, who are the last uh, (coughs) excuse me, uh, link in the chain of education, are being you know demonized so often as the ones who are. Letting our children down when, for the longest time, teachers have had to uh... <clears throat> excuse me take their orders, as it were, from administrators and legislatures. Uh, I don't understand how they come out uh... looking as bad as they do, and yet there's no real, you know, administrators and legislators come out you know looking clean. I, I just don't get that. And I, don't, I think most people that don't have a vested interest in education we will just take basically news at face value and i think sometimes the news can be uh you know swayed by certain agendas <laughs> and uh you know i'll just leave it at that
0: all right thanks chris thanks, thank you for, thanks for your call i want to address uh, two or three things out of chris's call uh one is uh, and you know any of you can answer this but uh, you know we're talking about how she Glenda ritz isn't playing along, so how isn't she playing along? What is it she's doing that's bothering uh, that you think that people would think that this is all a vendetta to get her?
2: Rachel? I might, I'm gonna throw something <clears throat> excuse me, in there that actually I was talking about with Brian Bosma earlier this week too, and that is who has policymaking authority? Mm-hmm. You know, Because I mean, you've got the governor, you've got the General Assembly, you've got the superintendent who heads the Department of Education, and then you have the State Board. That's five separate entities, and who has which responsibility is obviously an issue. And I think they're they're all questioning it too. They nobody really knows what falls to who, and that's sort of part of the a big part of the problem.
4: I'd, I'd take that a step further and say uh, a really important question is what is policy and what is uh, administration. What is policy? What is programs? Um, you know, the state board of education certainly has. Considerable policy setting and policy making authority goal-setting authority uh, But the statute if you look at it is actually a little bit the the state state code is actually somewhat Confusing and contradictory it gives some responsibilities to the to the uh, State Board of Education It gives many responsibilities to the Indiana Department of Education uh, Indiana Department is of Education is the state education agency, which is something that we deal with under under federal law and, and federal programs um so you would you would think that uh you know i would tend to draw parallels to uh local school corporations where the school board sets policy hires the superintendent and gets out of the way basically and lets the superintendent uh make or delegate decisions um uh, but it's very different at the state level, and, and part of that is, is a function, I'd say, of, of how the laws are written, what the legislature has chosen to do, and part of it is a function of uh, the sort of relative aggressiveness of, of um, board members and how they see their, um, their responsibility and, and, and um, um, their, their role in carrying out and, and creating, um, creating policy and actually creating programs and being very involved in signing off on, on a lot of actions.
5: I, I, I would say that I've been watching it for a long time since she was um, elected, and she was very, I, I, you know, in a perfect world, they would have sat down and said, okay, clearly you have this agenda, this is polar opposite of what ours is, but the people of Indiana are saying woe back And we're saying we want more time on learning and teaching and less time on testing. And all the many things that she ran on is clearly the reason why she ran and and why she won. But um, I watched very early on when she had had her staff put together a proposal to try to make the I Read 3 more humane. And I watched that meeting and I watched them not even allow her to bring the proposal to the board. Like it was back when she was, from my perspective, starting off reaching across the aisle saying, okay, here's something. And um, the way that they treated her as if she were a child, I... I have to say that there is a lot of sexism involved in this, and that's underlying a lot of it. I've never seen anybody point to somebody and talk to people the way that some of those men on that board have talked to her. So I think it has spiraled in many ways. But if you think about it from a woman's perspective, she's in that position. If she acts very accommodating, she's not a strong leader. If she acts strong, she's hysterical so you're in a tough position as a woman in that position Mm
0: -hmm. all right our phone numbers today eight five five as always eight five five zero eight one one in bloomington one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside the bloomington calling area you can also join a live chat at wfiu.org noon edition and you can follow us on twitter um, at noon edition so steve uh, you know we've, we've Follow the legislature for a long time. I and mean, there are lots of ways, that I, I think there's a debate, maybe a discussion to be had on whether this position should be elected or appointed. And do you think that will be, do you think that will come up in the future?
4: Yeah, I think it will. Mm-hmm. Um, it's come up before. Uh, people have, have raised the issue of whether we should have a, a, an appoint, if the state superintendent should be appointed by the, um, by the governor or appointed by the board some states the board members are elected and they appoint the state superintendents so you still have potential for conflict in that situation Um, the Indiana Chamber of Commerce uh, said this session that they wanted uh, an appointed board member to be uh, one of their priorities the legislature has not moved that I think realizing that politically it would look very bad to uh, essentially remove the only democratic uh, office state office holder from office during her term of office Um, but uh, they're sort of
5: uh, doing it up. anyway. i will doing it anyway. How, how that's
4: how that's playing out, but but yeah, I think it's it's something that people have talked about for a long time. The Center for uh, Evaluation and Education Policy at IU did a policy brief back in I don't know 2005 or something like that. Looked at it, and and there's there's been support on both sides of the political aisle uh, for making the position appointed. Or changing the way, changing the governance, uh, the, the governance situation. But there's sort of never a right time to do it because you're always in the midst of uh, right. situations like these. Right. Well, I want to welcome John Barnes to the program, John. Thank you. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for being here,
0: John. John is the director of legislative affairs for the Indiana Department of Education. Have you had a busy morning?
7: Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> been uh, just a little bit hectic. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay, but so glad to be here. So, what's the latest? Well. The latest is I think that, um, you know, we're figuring out a way to adjust the length of the testing. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a whole dialogue that goes with that. But the reason why this has been such a challenging week, I think, is that uh, starting way back on Monday, there's been an awful lot of misinformation out there. Um, and I guess I would, to summarize, just say... In August, CTB McGraw-Hill presented to the State Board of Education a slideshow that told them that there were going to be twice as many questions. And then in January, uh, they told us that the, the window and the way they wanted to try to approach this because of the test's rigor would be larger. Um, this idea that it's a bombshell, it's a surprise, just doesn't pass the smell test at all. Uh, People have been aware of that. And quite honestly, if the governor and the appointed members of the board haven't been aware of that, I'm worried about things, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially at a time when they're trying to give the state board more influence. It's like, wait a minute, um, they don't seem to be able to pay attention as it is. Right.
0: Okay, we're going to take one phone call before we uh, go to our break. So John from Bloomington is on the line. John?
7: Uh,
8: Following up on some other phoned-in questions, uh, I'd be interested to hear more about the makeup of the uh, appointees to the state board with respect to, for example, the gender balance, um, what kinds of educational expertise, if any, that individual members have and any potential for conflict of interest, not just the obvious kind in terms of one's own uh, income and family income, but Cronyism of the "I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine" kind. Thank you.
0: All right, John. Thanks. Who wants to take that?
2: Um, I, I wouldn't mind just answering the first part sure. of that question, since yeah. I, Claire and I, my partner at State Impact, we both go to those meetings. So um, there are a number of teachers who make up. Aside from Glenda Ritz, we're just talking about the other uh, appointed board members. I think they've got four, three or four teachers, a couple of principals. There are some. Um, business members of the business community. Um, there are three women aside from Glenda Ritz. The, the rest are men. I think that was everything he had asked. But I know I saw you both raise. Well, your
7: hands. I, I was going to say I would add in uh, to me this is a perfect time to address the issue of the composition of the board, and and we truly welcome that, because out of the 10 members, you're right, there's supposed to be a certain number of educators, and as you said, I I believe currently it's four, uh, and there are actually more than that on the board with education backgrounds, but at the same time, politically, the idea is that it's supposed to be six Republicans and four Democrats. And the problem is defining who's a Republican and who's a Democrat is, is very, very difficult. There are other ways we could do this. If we truly want to say these people are Republicans, these people are Democrats, there would be other ways to do that, including giving the minority party a chance to make some appointments. That way we would be clear. And that six and four is based on the governor who's in office? He appoints all of them, yes.
0: So, so, I mean, if it was a Democratic governor, it would be six Democrats and four Republicans?
4: No. Yeah, no more than six of the okay. appointed members right. must, can be from either political party. Gotcha. Okay.
0: Well, we're going to have to take a short break. I want to give our phone numbers again, though. We're talking about... Uh, Indiana's public education system and a lot of things going through the legislature, which are, uh, I'd say, explosive at this moment. <laughs> so if you want to give us a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the Bloomington area, you can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with co-host Rachel Morello from State Impact Indiana, and today we're talking about uh, the legislature and uh, most more specifically education legislation. The state superintendent of schools has automatically been the chair of the state school board for about 100 years but that could change if proposed legislation passes to allow the state board to elect one of its members to serve as chair. We're talking about that and issues about the length of I-STEP and a lot of other things today. We have uh, some great guests with us in the studio. John Barnes is the Director of Legislative Affairs for the Indiana Department of Education. Kathy Fuentes Rohr is head of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education of Monroe County in southern Indiana and a Bloomington mom to four kids, uh, three who are still in the public schools. And Steve Hennefeld is a longtime reporter and education blogger. He worked for the Herald Times for many years. He works for Indiana University now, and his education blog is right on point for a lot of issues going on. Uh, in the schools today. You can join us on the program, 855-0811 in Bloomington or one 285 9348 You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Rachel.
2: I want to bring in another clip that we've got um, from our interview with House Speaker Brian Bosma earlier in the week, and then we can hopefully build off of that with some other questions. Uh, We've heard this called the education session a number of times. Governor Pence called it this. We've heard it from other legislators. And obviously, there's a huge number of bills going through both chambers right now on a number of issues, including this makeup of the board. Um, But I, I want to roll in some tape from the interview and just hear what the speaker had to say about the... I believe seven or eight, there's a handful of um, pieces about the board, so let's play that.
3: One of the most important issues that we're going to deal with this year is governance for education policy because it impacts a million students, it impacts a million families, literally, in Indiana plus, and uh, it impacts our future. There's no more important uh, item that we deal with here at the General Assembly than K-12 and higher education matters.
2: So I want to ask you, John, uh, how important is it that this issue of governance get addressed before we get to all of this other stuff that they're talking about?
7: Well, I I certainly think the issue of governance needs to be addressed immediately. There's no question about that. Um, But again, you know, our feeling is that a lot of the drama has been manufactured. Um, Nobody is under more scrutiny than the Superintendent of Public Instruction, Glenda Ritz, everything she does. And the good thing is that she is so efficient and she is so effective that it's not a problem for her to deal with that. But, but what we've found is, and this is one of the big problems, everything we do gets questioned. When you work with the governor's people to apply to get recertification of a waiver and you're working with them and talking to the feds and putting it all together and then they put together a 28-page critique that they send in at the same time, there's a lot of question marks there. We, we cannot uh, see a situation where we're able to work with them. So often it seems like we have to work around them. and so. The challenge, really, uh, is to make sure that we develop a more collegial atmosphere, but I don't think that's Superintendent Ritz's fault. All right.
0: We have a phone call from a teacher from Bloomington named Angie. Angie?
1: Yeah, hi. Hi. How you doing?
0: Good. Go ahead.
1: Thanks for letting me enjoy um, I'm just getting ready to back, open back the door, but I just wanted to call in because I went and got my lunch real quick. It's finals at South. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, it's a big discussion at our school. And the big question is, um, I have a fellow teacher whose mom was a teacher, and we talked about if we're going to do these kinds of things to Glenda Ritz, why don't we elect the school board? Why is the school board appointed by the governor and we elected Glenda Ritz? So why don't the people have a say for who's gonna govern what happens to our students? Mm -hmm. Use that music, let me get away from that. (laughs)
4: All right, Steve.
0: You, you sort of addressed this
4: a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah there there are a lot of different uh, models of it, of, uh, of governance, uh, including um, what what Indiana has: elected governor, elected uh, superintendent, uh, state board appointed by the governor. Uh, some states uh, elect the board members. That that in fact happens in in some states. In some states, the superintendent is appointed by the governor. Um, so a lot of different models and really no one way. In fact, I don't think there's any one majority way of doing it. Um, you know, some are, are arguably more directly democratic than others. Uh, the argument for the Indiana system, I suppose, uh, in terms of appointing the board members would be that we elect the governor and that we, part of the governor's responsibility has to do with education policy and the way the governor uh, sort of is able to uh, um, implement or carry out that that uh, his education agenda or her education agenda uh, is through appointing members of the state board as well as through proposing legislation.
0: All right, so we have another call. Ted is on the line, and Ted's from Bloomington.
8: Hi. Hey. Uh, I have a quick question mm-hmm. uh, about Mike Pence's appointments. Uh, I'm looking them over, and uh, there are
6: sort of five sort of generally speaking educators, either administrators or educators
8: that he's appointed, and three of them are associated with private Christian schools. I'm wondering if anyone has a comment or an idea about what Pence's agenda is.
0: (laughs) Uh, Hey, there are people, uh, mm, let's see,
7: smiling in here, I guess I'll say. So, John, you want to start? Well, absolutely. I think that this is one of the, the flaws in the system, I think, is that you know, we need to have a board that has a better cross-section and more diversity. There's no question about that. And you're right, there could be some conflict of interest questions raised, especially when you start to talk about Marion University and some of the contracts that they have received. Uh, those issues alone make you wonder how this works. So again, there's no question we need to revise the the governance model. Mm-hmm. Kathy?
5: Well, I, I feel like we get really bogged down, as much as it's very dramatic and it's good watching when you're in your kitchen to see the State Board of Education members and the, and the infighting going on, but we're, then we start to not focus on what the governor has done to create the fighting with the CECI, a whole shadow Department of Education that confused roles because it wasn't in law. And so he does all this and there's all this undermining and so suddenly she's hysterical as everybody's trying to figure out, she's painted as hysterical, let's be clear, and um, as everybody's trying to figure out the roles and then somehow he's offering a, an olive branch by dissolving that, but he has this enabling, codependent super majority there who say, here, we'll just put it right into statute, and she doesn't have to do it.
7: And and if I might chime in real quickly, the most interesting thing, I keep hearing about the walkout, and I think that's interesting. If you look at that tape, she adjourned the meeting six times, and I think I would argue everybody walks out of a meeting after it's adjourned, at least the last time I looked. Uh, But the way that's repeated time and time again really does try to paint her as somebody who's hard to get along with, and that's just not true.
2: Um, so we've got another caller on the line. Can we bring in um, John from Bloomington? John, are you there? Nope. Oh, I think we lost him. Lost Hello? Oh, hi, John. Go ahead with okay. your question. Uh, actually, this is Don from Terre Haute. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Don from Terre Haute. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I was just wanting to comment. There's been a lot of rhetoric,
8: I think, surrounding as if somehow they were uh, de-electing Glenda Rich by uh, changing this, um, uh, changing her power as far as being the chairman of the board. I I think, you know, as we've heard from our president and other people, elections do have consequences. And I think it's damaging to have a, uh, a board president who's at odds with the majority of the board and also the legislature and also the governor who is really controlling uh, the funding for education. So I I, I fault the the way the system works more. I don't think it should be an elected position personally, and I think when you uh, have elections and you put people at odds that really need to be uh, more in and maybe not lockstep, but more in agreement with each other, I think that that can be damaging to the whole process. So,
0: Don, I want to ask you because I, you know we I have to say that our our. Our panel is balanced a little bit in Glenda Ritz's favor in here. So, are, are you, uh, do you follow this issue closely? And are you someone who would maybe be critical of her or?
8: I I, I follow it somewhat. I wouldn't say I'm all, uh, I, I'm up on all the, the nuanced arguments uh, for and against. I, I just know some of the broader issues that uh, she opposes and that the governor and the legislature support as far as. Uh, vouchers and some of the other, uh, you know, how some people would say she's more skewed towards the uh, teachers, and the the uh, legislature and governor are more skewed towards maybe uh, diversifying uh, public education. But um, yeah, so I, I'd probably be somewhat critical of her, but I I probably wouldn't be the best to
0: uh, okay.
8: have every argument. Well,
0: about. I just wanted to welcome you. I you know we we want to hear viewpoints from all over. So mm-hmm. all right, Kathy. Uh.
5: Yeah. You know, I, I I think that it's it's um, kind of confusing when we start point um, painting it as a partisan issue when you're just talking about public education because at the federal level, the Democrats are doing a lot to promote the whole charter school and the testing test driven accountability and they're killing public education that way, and and so for me in in the state of Indiana, if I have to hear one more person from the Chamber of Commerce or the Hoosiers for Economic Growth or I mean quality education. Uh, say that they're for the kids, I'm going to jump off a cliff. Because I'm, I'm a mommy who's for the kids, and that's why I really worked hard. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a union person. I'm somebody who really believes in public education, and I'm tired of my kids being used in a political battle. And that means politics is your relationship to power, not just the party. And my kids are, are caught in a power struggle for public education.
4: Yeah, I would say this is Steve. I would say that that uh, the Don raises makes a good point and certainly a legitimate point. There's certainly a decent argument to be made that the governor and the state superintendent should be on on the same page, and um, that uh, you know if that were the if that were the case, um, that uh, possibly uh, you know the education might figure larger in the uh, gubernatorial elections, and uh, people might be looking more to. Uh, candidates' uh, uh, goals and, and platforms on education. It's, a, it's an argument. I'm not sure that I, that I agree with it. Uh, I know a lot of people who definitely wouldn't agree with it. Uh, you certainly can't start from where – you have to start from where we are. Where we are is we have Glenda Ritz as superintendent and Mike Pence as governor. So where do we go with that? But, but, um, but the, point, the argument that the superintendent should be appointed is not a new argument and not, not an extreme argument.
7: Well, and again, uh, as Don said, elections do have consequences, but uh, this particular election had an interesting result, and that is that the superintendent's race actually got more votes than the governor's race. So the people sent a clear message. I would say, again, we're happy to look at the governance model. The problem with the current legislation is everybody wants to do it immediately. And we're happy to sit down and talk about this. But at the very, very least, legislation that removes her as chair shouldn't take effect until after the next election. And that's
4: not been the way that they're looking at it. So, so John, I want to ask, how much of, of a real impact would there be from moving removing her as chair and appointing somebody else chair? She's still going to be head of the Department of Education. She's still going to be, uh, you know, the person who... Um, reports to the board about what the department is doing and that that department will still have uh, its statutory duties assuming the legislature doesn't significantly change them Uh, and as we saw this morning uh, being chair doesn't even mean that she can get the board to consider what she calls them to uh, a meeting to consider.
7: No, you have a good point, but changing it midstream sends absolutely the wrong signal. I really argue that you know people wanna say, oh, well, when they elected her, they didn't know she was also the, the chair of the state board. If that needs to be changed, then you change it when the voters have a chance to send that message, and to change it midstream just absolutely sends the wrong signal. All right, if you have a question or a
0: comment, please give us a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We do have a lot of activity on the phones (laughs) now, so we hope to get to everybody. Um, But next in line is John from Bloomington. John? Hello? Hey, John.
10: Oh, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh... Uh, back in the early 70s, uh, Harvard University, um, under the aegis of one of its famous sociologists, conducted a, a massive review of uh, the literature across disciplines pertaining to education. And uh, th- this uh, report, which was front-page news on papers across the country, interesting, uh, concluded that schools really did very little uh, in terms of educational attainment. That other factors, especially home environment, were far more important and after generating some brief discussion this thing was forgotten almost immediately um, partly because schools didn't want to hear it because the implication being uh, throwing more resources at schools wouldn't make much difference and conservatives didn't want to hear it because the suggestion was that, uh, uh, that maybe an expansion of the welfare state might be more efficacious uh, in terms of uh, student attainment in schools And it seems to me we're still stuck in that same uh, kind of divide where we expect so much more from uh, the schools than they can ever possibly deliver, and that uh, uh, issues pertaining to our children uh, are much more uh, uh, prof- broad uh, than, uh, than simply the schools, and yet we seem to focus on schools, and this business about school leadership seems to me more about scoring political points than it is about the children.
7: All right. John Barnes from the uh, Indiana Department of Education. Well, that's a very interesting argument, school versus home environment, and that certainly is something that we have been addressing in the Department of Education. Uh, Recently, uh, we had some folks from our outreach division present before a House committee, and we were talking about how outreach is better than intervention. Uh, you need to have boots on the ground. You need to have people out there who are actually in the school districts talking to them on a regular basis, making those contacts so that you don't have to intervene uh, in terms of things like uh, uh, you know, trying to remediate later. Uh, the interesting thing about that was at that meeting, uh, Dan Elsner of the State Board of Education got up and said, we don't have a turnaround division anymore. And, again, uh, it was like, wait a minute, Uh, don't you realize it's three times as big as it was, and we actually have somebody who is full-time community contacts and community involvement. So, we absolutely understand, especially in the turnaround schools, if you don't get in touch and work with the community, you're not going to be able to make that kind of a change. Mm -hmm.
1: All right.
7: Rachel?
2: Yeah, we've got another caller. Um, Can we bring in Pam from Bloomington? Are you there, Pam?
1: Yes, I'm here. Thanks so much for taking my call, and I'm thrilled for having this program. I want to really uh, talk for a minute about the effect this is having on teachers, because every one of us can name teachers that without them we would not have achieved, and we are going to lose the best and the brightest. My friends who are teachers are in despair because their lives revolve on what they're going to teach, how they think the kids will do on the test and doing the test. Our kids went to Montessori, and the one thing I disliked most when they switched to public school was that in public school, the only standard is we don't have to learn it unless you can test. And in Montessori, it's exactly the way it should be. Everything is a learning experience. So I'm very dismayed about the effect on teachers, because the Board of Education has made it completely clear they don't respect teachers and they don't respect teaching as a profession. And that is dire for all of us. This is a vast move, Kathy is right, by Alex, to take America's greatest promise, a free public education, and now make it something that the marketplace can earn a profit from, and we are all the losers for it. That's my comment, and I'd love for you to talk about how we can keep teachers under this horrible environment that they are forced, to, uh, operate
0: it. all right pam thanks i want to turn to john and i think it's interesting to note from your bio so john has been a teacher for a long time, just retired, right? O-
7: only thirty-three years, right? 33. Social <laughs> studies, high school social studies teacher for 30, thirty-three years,
0: and he has a different perspective because his uh, high school government students challenged him to run for public office. So <laughs> right. he ran twice, unsuccessfully first, and then he was elected to the state house. So exactly, he, he served a term in the state house as well. So you have, you know, you have a broad perspective to look at that. But Pam's comments about teachers and what they're facing
7: today, you know, from your perspective, is this a widespread feeling among teachers? It's absolutely a wide. Spread feeling. And and I think the problem is over the past few years, um, you know, the rhetoric has been that teaching is not a profession. It's a hobby. It's something you should do for a few years and then you should go get a real job. Uh, And it's difficult to understand in, in terms of the way we look at that, why we wouldn't want to encourage people to be career teachers and to be the best teachers they possibly can be. The stress is incredible, obviously, and the problem is we see all over the place, IU included, right here in Bloomington, fewer and fewer people going into teacher preparation programs. I think the last time I heard Ball State was down like 40% at a teacher's college. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to
0: turn to Rachel because I know she's got a lot of questions. I know we want to talk more about the, about the testing issue too.
2: Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with that question actually. I'm, I'm curious um, with the length of the test and with what they are trying to do, and I know they did a little bit today to shorten it, how will that affect what teachers are doing in the next two weeks? Because the testing window opens, what, February 25th? It's, pretty, it's coming up pretty quick. So right. how, how will what was suggested at today's meeting affect teachers this well, month?
7: I certainly think it it can help to reduce the stress if we get that communicated and that's the biggest problem and that was mentioned at the board meeting this morning is that how do you make sure that all the teachers realize how we're changing this up. But I think bottom line the biggest issue we look back at is that this idea of a longer test and a longer testing window all has to do with the increased rigor that we're required to do if the questions are harder the students will need more time. The misinformation that's getting out there is about the testing window, and people talking about it being longer than uh, you know taking the bar exam. That's ridiculous. The whole idea of the testing window being bigger is to give teachers and schools more flexibility. Third graders, for instance, will be able to take part of the test every other day, and the highest number of uh, minutes they would be involved in is 55 minutes, and finish it out the idea is to try to make sure that there's flexibility and there's enough time we worry that when the governor talks about shortening the time without removing some of the questions that just creates even more panic and even more confusion yeah
0: i, I wish you I, I want you to clarify even a little more than that. so sort of take us through that i mean there. are the so and i want
7: to start with the, the stress test, which was yesterday. Okay. What, what is that? The stress test is when we test hardware and we look for weak points between the provider and the school system. Okay. So basically what we're trying to do is we're looking for problems on both ends. And we're trying to do that way ahead of time. Now, one of the, another piece of misinformation, the online portion of the test for 99% of the schools is in May. It's in May. So we're doing the stress test now to make sure that everything goes well in May. Um, People have been up in arms and said, well, oh, my gosh, we have problems. Well, exactly. And that's what we need to fix. The connectivity problem across the state is huge. So it's not always the provider. Sometimes it's the local school district. We want to be able to troubleshoot that. Okay. And then. Just to repeat, so the, the testing
0: window, so we, we ta- heard a lot about how this test is going to be 12 hours long now.
7: Not true. Right? Not true. Okay, No. It, it is going to be longer. There's no question about that. But again, we realize there has to be a certain amount of flexibility.
2: Can you explain a little bit, John, for people who might not understand what is going on with piloting these new questions? I heard that was also potentially a reason why this could be short.
7: Absolutely. Um, Well, I don't want to go too long on this, but (laughs) you may remember that two years ago, when we first came into the State House, there was a move to abandon the Common Core standards. And so House Bill 1429 did that. And it directly said you're going to come up with a new set of standards, okay? Well, what the Fed said was that's okay, but that's also going to put you on a shorter timeline in terms of keeping your waiver because we want to keep close tabs on what you really are going to do. And so as a result, where a lot of states have had two years to start to to transition to the college career ready standards with the pilot questions and other things they need to do, we're getting one. We asked the feds for an additional waiver and we said, can we spread out these extra questions over two years? And we were told, no, you can't. And so as a result, The longer test comes from the fact that a Republican-dominated legislature decided to change standards in midstream. And as a result, these are all the consequences that are happening.
4: So, John, that makes it sound like the the, uh, proposal that that the governor made this this week to shorten the test and that Glenda Ritz uh, also made further and actually made specific proposals this morning that said we can shorten the test by uh, approximately three hours and, and we're going to go ahead and do that. That, that that would be up to what, whether the feds agree with uh, some of the changes that were made in terms of the number of piloted uh, test items, the number of items that are released, uh, as well as changes in state law in terms of social studies uh, exams and that sort of thing. A lot of stuff that has to happen right. in the next two weeks if, uh, if these tests are going to be given differently or in, in a shorter fashion.
7: That's absolutely right, and it has to be with the blessing of the feds if we want to keep our waiver, and so that becomes one of the issues. Now, we're in contact with Deb Delisle, the Assistant Secretary of Education, on the phone every day. And that's been one of the things, as we've scrambled, as the request was made by the governor to shorten this, we've said, well, look, there are things that we need to check on. It's not going to be so simple as just to we've got to get permission from the feds. And we also have to have the legislature take action to repeal some state laws that also require additional questions. So it's not as easy as it looks. Just to clarify, the test is going
0: to be shortened, Mm -hmm. not just the test window.
7: That's my understanding. And as you can imagine, driving down here today, I, I didn't get to hear all of it. But, you know, that was certainly the, the intent, is that the superintendent wants to work with the governor and the legislature to see if we
4: can't do that. All right. I want to give Steve
0: and Kathy 30 seconds each. we got less than a minute to go.
4: Well, um, I think one thing that, that I wrote this week on my blog is, was that that the issue is not just how long the test is and how hard the test is, but the issue is what – what, uh, uh, we do with the test results, and, and what, we, uh, what stakes are attached to the test, what we expect tests to do for us, what we expect to be able to do with that knowledge. And I think that that raises a lot of important questions that we really haven't addressed, and we get locked in this finger-pointing about who said what when. Thirty, exactly.
5: <laughs> okay, um, I I was going to say what Steve just said, and I, I just would just add further that my child is not a test score, and none of my kids are defined by that, and I don't want them to be good test takers. I want them to do way more than what is what is shown on a test. And that ICPE and many other groups that are advocating for public education are having a rally on Monday at the state house at two o'clock, and we would really like you to be there. And to hashtag I N E D rally the, in I N at Raleigh, um, or hashtag I stand with Ritz.
0: Okay, thank you very much. It's John Barnes has been here from the Indiana Department of Education, Kathy Fuentes-Rohr and Steve Hennefeld, who are both uh, very uh, uh, passionate about education, for producer Alex McCall, engineer Mike Pashkash, and my co-host today, Rachel Morello. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
9: This is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from
0: Smithville Communications, serving Southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net.
1: And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life, publichealth.indiana.edu.